Hey, you're listening to the Time and Talks podcast. I'm your host, Dejal V. Patel, and this is the place where we have refreshingly real talks about the biggest problems moms face in motherhood and life and the spiritual solutions to solve them. If you're ready to reset your mindset with some major truth bombs, well then, let's dive in. Hey everybody, I'm so happy that you're here and I have a treat for you today. You're going to love today's guest. I'm sitting with the author of the wildly popular book, Well-Behaved Indian Women, Somia Dave. If you have not read this book, I need you to pause this podcast, head over to Amazon, buy the book, and then come back here. I promise you there will be no spoilers. However, you're going to get a really intimate, raw conversation with the author to understand her experience and why she created the characters and this multidimensional and generational weaving of this beautiful tapestry of how connection, communication, and just how the bond of three generations of South Asian women can be. And it is so relatable to all of us. So just a little bit about Somia. Somia is a writer, a psychiatrist, and a mental health advocate. As a writer, she enjoys exploring the unique dynamics that exist in immigrant families. Her debut novel, Well-Behaved Indian Women, was released in July of 2020, and her essays, articles, and poetry have been featured in the New York Times, ABC News, Refinery29, and so many other places. She is a practicing therapist, a co-founder of the mental health nonprofit This Is For Her, and an adjunct professor at Mount Sinai. She lives in New York City with her husband and son, and today she's going to help us press the reset button on being well-behaved Indian women. We really dive deep into understanding her vision behind this book, and she also gives us a sneak peek on what her second book is all about. So let's dive into this raw and intimate conversation with Somia Dave. Somia, I'm so deeply honored that you're here talking to us about your newly debuted book, Well-Behaved Indian Women. I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and this is just such a treat. So it was really nice. So earlier this week, with the time of shooting this, we had like this virtual book uh, club that one of your friends had organized and that was so remarkable. And I got even more, I was already excited for this interview, but I just got that much more excited being in the virtual book club and just hearing you speak. So I'm really excited about, you know, the other mama listeners who weren't able to be at the book club to be able to listen to your vision, your idea behind this book, and just celebrate your success of being a published author. That is such a treat. Oh, thank you so much. And I I just love knowing that, that there are so many other mothers out there listening, that there are so many readers out there. It's This is such a great opportunity to connect, really. It is. It is. So let's start at the beginning. What inspired you to write this multi-generational novel? So I started this book actually in 2008. Um, in some of my other events, I've spoken about how this journey has been such a long, very long labor of love. I started it back you know, at the end of college when I really wanted to write a book about what it was like to plan a big fat Indian wedding. Mm. And I envisioned having this romantic comedy that would be cute and endearing and it would follow a couple um, who has been together since high school. And then now they have to plan this event that has all these different smaller events associated with it and a lot of stress. And and I really wanted to see what would happen with that couple. Um, 
So actually, when I finished the first draft in 2009, it was about Simran and Kunal and just their wedding planning process, actually. And, and then Neil comes in. So it was purely this love triangle novel. And Simran's parents were always in the book, um, but they were they were smaller characters at that point. They didn't really play as big of a role as they obviously do now. And when I was in medical school, uh, years later, I worked on this book again for so, so long. So when I was doing one of my many, many rewrites after my many, many rejections, I started my third year rotations. And for us, that's when we go out into all of the different specialties in medicine. And we get a little bit of a preview of what each one is like to see if any of them align with our own interests. And with every single rotation I was on, it was in rural Georgia, uh, where Mm -hmm. I trained. And every single rotation, I experienced some sexism and some racism. And I was so shocked because I wasn't expecting that at all. But the types of comments I heard um, where where people assumed that they just knew who I was and and what I was about and and where my country of origin was coming from when it came to so many different topics. I got asked, you know, multiple times, are you going to have an arranged marriage? And are you allowed to work here? I thought women from your country don't work and, and so many different things. And I kept wondering what it would be like for someone like Nandini to go through those things because she, being Simran's mom, trained in a generation before. And I had heard by then from some family friends who who were female physicians what it was like for them and some of the things they had heard. So from there on out, I started putting together what would it have been like for a woman like this to, to go through this and to really want to make something of herself, but experience barriers in these small and big ways. And what if those goals of hers clashed with her daughters? How would that look? Mm-hmm. How would that impact their relationship? And that's really where her story came came to the page. And what I did actually at first was um, once that happened, I started writing a few chapters from Nandini's perspective. So at first I had maybe about three or four in the whole book. And right before our wedding, um, I, I submitted the book to try to find an agent. And the week that I got married, I got 10 rejections. Literally that week, I got 10 rejections. And um, so it was great. It was a great way to get off the week. <laughs> Nobody knew what I was doing anyway. So, so so I had to just kind of keep it to myself and smile and not really be able to explain anything. But I got these 10 rejections and all 10 of them said, um, I don't think your book is ready, but but I really liked this character, Nandini. Could you add more of her in there? Would you be open to doing that? And that's when I kind of knew that there was something to her story. And I was so drawn into her story as well, but I knew it wasn't just me and that something was resonating about her journey. So then throughout my residency, I added more and more of her in there. And then that led to what we see now, which is truly an intergenerational story between a mother and a daughter. So there's so many different things I want to impact with what you said. So first off is that, you know what I find really synchronistic when you were talking is that when we talk about like or this book, right, of course, for South Asian women, this is so relatable because mm-hmm. the multidimensional characters, the plot points is very like there's an aspect of certain characters that you see in yourself. So mm-hmm. there's that. However, I find it very synchronistic that the time that your book launched, which is was July of 2020, that's exactly the same time that that saw, that show from Netflix, that, that Indian matchmaking show. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, when I listened to some of the interviews of people who were on the show, is that they didn't expect that it would have such a wide reach of viewers. So when you talk about like just even our culture of other people who are not aware of like the arranged marriages, like the, you know, the can women really work or be mm-hmm. professionals and all these stereotypes and stigmas, 
it actually is eye-opening for, uh, you don't have to be South Asian to relate to this. I think that there's just this open, big conversation that's happening. Um, so that was one aspect yeah. of like, isn't that so interesting that yeah. like, I mean, nobody planned that. That's just kind of like it, your book and that show just released at the same time. And people are talking about that. I thought that was interesting, right? That's so true. And I'm, I'm really hoping it means that for just South Asians in general, things are on the upswing when it comes to representation and and different, different portrayals of what we go through being out there because of course I've heard people say oh Indian matchmaking is spreading this type of image about our culture but mm-hmm. I think there's just so much in our culture and so no one piece of anything is really going to represent it all and that's why I do hope we just keep seeing a lot more out there yeah and it's just opening a conversation right there's going to be different viewpoints different um you know different ideas but you're right like just you know starting a conversation about cultural and just that the fusion of that generation that came here and many of us are first generation and some of us are maybe from India and raising our children. So they're the mm-hmm. first generation. So it just creates more awareness of that as we start to mel- meld ourselves. Um, so specifically of the characters, and I promised in the intro that there would be no spoilers in this interview. So if you have not gotten the book, you can you can comfortably listen to this conversation. We're not going to spoil anything for you, but I was interested, which one of the characters did you relate to the most? And are they, is, is any of the experiences that you wrote about, is that from personal experience or your mom's experience or your, maybe your nanny's experience, or was that just kind of all fiction? Sure. A little bit of both. So I, uh, I really related to Simran when I started the book. I started it in my early 20s. Now I'm in my 30s. Um, and, and I was so confused at that time and really felt like I had to have a plan for where my life was going. And if I didn't get married by a certain age, and if I didn't have this set career by a certain age, then I was a failure. And I was actually letting down all of the hard work that my parents did. I, I just carried a lot of that on my shoulders. And I think a lot of my friends who are the children of immigrants have done that. Um, So I put a lot of that in there because for me personally, it led to so much confusion. I wasn't one of those people who was like, yes, I'll I'll follow X, Y, and Z and I'll be happy and great. I questioned a lot of the stuff I was Mm -hmm. doing the way she does. Um, She also, she also thinks that everything she does right now matters and, and doesn't have that awareness just yet that it's okay to change your mind and it's never too late to do so that we don't have limits as women or as people. And, and I definitely felt that way as well. What's interesting is because the book took so, so long um, is that by the time I finished writing it and definitely by the time I got the publishing deal, I related the most to Nandini Mm. um, by far. I I just saw a lot of myself in her, the way she goes about her day-to-day job and and interactions with people and sometimes feeling like she doesn't fully fit in, but once that connection really, really resonated with me um, by the end of the writing process. And then with Nani, she is based off of my maternal grandmother who passed away a couple of years ago. None of the events in the book happened. Um, but all of the things that happened in the book were inspired by the way real life situations made me feel. So my maternal grandmother um, was a widow for a very long time for most of my adult life. And she did go around very independently and did whatever she wanted. And I always found so much inspiration and strength in that. And she spoke her mind and she broke conventions Mm -hmm. and she was very unapologetic about those things. And so even though, you know, she didn't teach at a school and do the things that Nani specifically did a lot Mm -hmm. of the traits that, that informed Nani's behavior came from my own grandmother for sure. Yeah. I think the reason why your book is so relatable is that, and I think this is kind of universal that all of us, right. Emotions Mm -hmm. are universal. 
every one of us experience the same emotions. It might be a different experience that leads us to that. So it's so beautifully illustrated. I mean, I'll be very honest. Simran was me, like from mm -hmm. the, the experience mm -hmm. of getting, you know, being in a relationship with someone from a very young age to the getting the, getting engaged to somebody and then also having like the questioning phase. I really very much related to her. But one thing that I think that your book did really wonderfully for me, it opened me to a perspective of more empathy for mm -hmm. my mom's generation. Mm -hmm. And I've always had kind of a strained relationship with her. But the whole thing about what you shared about, you know, it was a different secret. But it's also like that generation was forced to kind of not share their feelings and not open, you know, there was no outlet for them to talk about, you know, this is like, this is what's happening to me, or this, this maybe trauma happened to me, or whatever the case may be. So secrets, like that theme of like holding secrets because of one not feeling safe or not being acceptable to share your feelings. Um, I think that is a universal current of just the generation, like our parents' generation and the generations previously to that. And just also our ability to kind of break that, like, you know, there's things that probably happen to them that we may not be aware of, right? They're not sharing with us. So um, I think that beautifully illustrated that. I think also your vantage point, not only being such a dynamic author, but you are a mental health advocate. You're also a psychiatrist. I don't think I've ever met anyone in our generation who hasn't had that need for approval from their parents or feeling like um, they're going to let them down if they don't fit the box of what mm -hmm. a conventional, traditional South Asian expects their children to do. So from that hat of you being a, um, a psychiatrist and a mental health advocate, what do you suggest or what, in your opinion, like how do we go about breaking that need from approval from our parents and as parents as well, like how do we break that cycle to continue for our children? Definitely. I think it's so hard and it varies situation by situation. What, what I've tend to, tended to see is that people, whether they're a child or a parent, um, they, they feel the most amount of regret and resentment when they feel like they can't be themselves. And themselves can vary depending on whether we're talking about a professional situation, a personal situation, whatever it is. But but I think the ability and the space to authentically be yourself around the people you love is so powerful. And unfortunately, when we're trying to make other people happy out of the goodness of everyone's hearts, and we feel restricted in that, that's when we might feel like we're not accepted. And there's this level of just thinking we're ostracized. And so I think whether we're a parent or a child, whatever we can do to make someone feel like who their real self is, is accepted. And even who that search for that real self might look like is also accepted can be really, really valuable because I totally agree with you. I think a lot of us felt that pressure for our parents, but when I would take a step back, especially during this book, and then I'm working on my second book that also, oh, yay! Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm thinking back into that all over again. I, a lot of times I think that our parents came here in that immigrant mentality to survive came also into an immigrant mentality to look very polished and, and as though a lot of values are preserved mm. and a lot of things are perfect and nobody's perfect. And so then I think there's this pressure that just gets passed down in addition to so many other things that get passed down. And that's where things get really, really tough. I, I don't know if it always boils down to, oh, my parents telling me to be a doctor or a lawyer mm -hmm. and, here, and I want to be this. It, it really sometimes is more if we go one level deeper, 
I don't feel like I can be myself and I don't feel like I can express who myself is and even figure out who myself is without, without being judged in some way. And that's where the trouble comes in. I think in that older generation too, right? There was a common current of like, what will people say? That idea of like really caring about the value of what your reputation is versus Mm -hmm. being authentic to yourself, which I think we're, we're doing a very we We're on the way of breaking that cycle. I think we are. I'm generation. really proud of all of the stuff I'm seeing from our generation, whether it's the conversations in the personal space, stuff I'm seeing on Instagram. I, I just think our generation is being so aware and so proactive about being that change, like you said. Yeah, I agree. You shared that the characters, like the specific experience is not necessarily what happened in your life. But as far as creating the characters of Nandini and um, the nanny. Did you, are these loosely based off of your mom or your, you know, your mom's experiences or your, um, grandmother's experiences, or did you interview people in that generation or how, how did you create that such a dynamic understanding of those generations? Sure. So um, then, a lot of Nandini's character traits are inspired by my mom, but actually on the surface, they are nothing alike. So it was funny when my mom first read the book, she said, did you just pick a totally different type of Indian auntie? <laughs> Your mother, daughter, <laughs> keep reading and you'll see below the surface, there are things that they do. You know, they both also go against convention and, and had to really sacrifice a lot of their own desires for family. So a lot of the things on a thematic level are completely aligned between my mom and her. And even if, you know, my mom's not a physician and and she didn't move away when she was older to pursue any new opportunities or anything like that. Um, but but yeah, I think that that both my mom and grandmother, the the battles they went through really informed the way the story played out on the page for sure, more than maybe the actual events themselves. Yeah. Uh, so it seems like your mom, your mom read the book. Yeah. Um, did your dad read the book? No, he has not read the book yet. I'm. Oh. It's so funny because all of my friends who have read it, they've said, yeah, obviously the dad is exactly <laughs> dad in every way. Like there's nothing subtle about it in any way. And I just keep wondering, like, will he read it? I mean, he's not really a fiction reader. And then when there's some kissing scenes and stuff like that, I'm okay with him not reading it. You know what I mean? Yes. There's yeah. that immigrant child coming out. I look at me on my high horse. I'm like, we should be ourselves. And then I'm like, no. Oh no! Please. I know, I know. I but that's so interesting. I am. Um, I uh, two things. So I when I one of the reviews that came out earlier um, in the process when the book was just coming out, or maybe even before it was released, said, "Oh, there aren't enough sex scenes in this book." And I thought, "Do you know who I'm talking to?" I know. Back. This was just exactly the right amount. Exactly. I thought, do you want me to have a panic attack? What is going on with you, reviewer? And then second, um, I had posted about this on Twitter weeks ago when it happened. But, you know, my husband and son and I are quarantined with my parents and grandparents right now in Atlanta. So we're all just on top of each other all the time. And the other day, um, my dad and I were watching TV and there was a kissing scene and he changed the channel when it started. And I was holding my baby. <laughs> That's so normal in our house too. And I, I can't look at the teeth when there's like a, like a, you know, kissing no. scene. I have to like pretend I still yeah. look away when yeah. my parents are in the room. Kind or of like, cool. yeah. You know, so funny. Oh, Some things are just won't change. No, That's just how it is. It doesn't matter if you have children, if you've moved on in life, doesn't no. you just can't go there. Yeah. Yeah. There's just no. There's just certain things that I don't even think it's worth trying to break either. Like, let's just leave that to bed. That's okay. Yes, totally. Totally. <laughs> You mentioned earlier, and I I really want you to talk about it. This because there's so many women who 
want to be authors Mm -hmm. and who want to be writers or like they have that as their vision or their purpose. And you mentioned, and I would love for you to talk more about this, but I know this all too well too, is that there's a lot of rejection that comes through this process. And you, but when you had said originally, you're like, you know, those people who said they're gave you the rejections, but they're like, oh, you know, like develop Nandini. Mm-hmm. I think that was just a beautiful way of like just depicting of like rejection is not failure. Like it's it it helped you mold the book to be what it right. is now. And so I just love for you to share just a little bit about your journey of becoming an author so that others who may, um, you know, be fearful of like that rejection or think that it's like they're not good enough or just like walk us through that a little bit for you. Sure. Thank you so much for also asking that because I wish that I had a reference point for that when I was going through this. So first of all, writing itself is such a solitary activity and and the journey can be really lonely, Um, especially, you know, I didn't have any friends who were writers or family members or family friends, no one. And I really depended on Google. And so when it came to even writing the book, I Googled, how do you write a novel? How do you find an agent? How do you do this? How do you do that? And that was, again, back in 2008 when all of those questions started. And I had no idea the amount of rejections that would come later. I had no idea. I think also coming from a path where where I got grades and I got evaluations and I got a little green light saying, hey, you're doing well and you're on the right path. That really actually set me up. And I didn't realize it at the time. That set me up to think that success comes in these metrics and these very clear metrics. You'll get some kind of feedback saying that you're on the right path. And with writing, um, so when you're traditionally traditionally publishing fiction, the first step is finding an agent and then the agent then pitches that book to, to an editor at a publishing house. So when I was even trying to find an agent and going through that first step, I got rejections left and right. I mean, I ended up getting over 150 rejections over the 10 years that I tried to publish this book. But what I found was that at first, the rejections were just form rejections, which is when, you know, the agency just sends back, oh, thank you. We can't we can't really look at this at this time. And over time, as I kept uh, revising the book, I found that the rejections actually became longer and more thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And that was the only sign I had that things were maybe going well and maybe going in a direction that was worth pursuing continually. So at first, you know, I had the form ones and then I would hear, oh, I really liked the themes, but, you know, I, I didn't, I don't think the writing really worked for me. Well, I don't think the character development was there just yet. And I would hold on to those more qualitative rejections and then I would revise the book again. So similar to exactly what you were saying with Nandini, that was another form of that right before my wedding. I, I I held on to that. And then the summer before I started residency, I worked on just incorporating more of her into the book because of those rejections. And so those rejections really helped a lot. They, they made the manuscript what it is. And I found that each one was different. I, I, I Before, again, because I was so focused on grades and metrics like that, mm-hmm. I thought either you succeed or you don't. Either you fail or you don't. And I actually found that there is something about failing upwards where technically on the outside, you're still failing from from the outside perspective, but the nature of that failure is different each time and you are going in the right direction. And that was all I had to hold on to uh, for a while. And I think on a personal level, I, I did need a journey like that. I did need something that didn't give me that external feedback and nobody was cheering me on. And I think this may have come up actually at the book club, but at, when I first started writing the book and I told people about it, they were so excited. And then I think probably after year five or six, and I don't blame anybody at all, 
they just stopped asking because I'm sure they were like, the squirrel says that you're doing this and it's not really going anywhere. And I'm sure I would have felt the same way if I were on their side of it. But yeah, and, and I think it really helped me let go of caring about what anybody thought, whether there would even be a book out there. I just got very absorbed in trying to write the best book I could possibly write. And mm-hmm. and I, I did need that, I think, on a personal level. I did need to learn how to do something for the sake of doing it, not because of anything it would give me back on this external level. Yeah. And, you know, when you were talking about that, what you just shared about, like, defining sex, um, sex, <laughs> defining success <laughs> as black or white, like, you know, like, it's like a, it's like, yes. you look at it as a grading, right? Like, oh, I need the, I, it's like a pass or a fail mm-hmm. or, you know. It's, that's actually breaking, I think, the the norm of South Asians, right? Of like right. success looks like this. And on my journey, you know what I've defined as I re- actually redefined failure in my journey. Mm-hmm. I actually started looking at it as that whenever I get a rejection, it's a no, not yet. Because Ooh, whenever yeah. there was no, not it's like. Um, and actually, I've shared this before, but I actually heard this quote from Kris Jenner that mm-hmm. I thought was just actually really, really good. She said, no. she told one of her girls, I think it was Courtney, she said that if you ever hear no from like somebody, like if someone tells you no, you're just not asking the right person. So it was like one of those things that I always looked at as a no, not yet. So I you get the no, feedback yeah. and it's like, it's always an opportunity to learn. There's a lesson to yeah. it. and. Um, and that's not the right person. Like, it's like you ask, like you, you get comfortable with asking and then you're like, oh, that's not that's it. You move on. And I looked at failure for me. I started defining it as um, failure is giving up at something that I really, really want. So mm-hmm. if I would have given up on like writing the book or believing in my vision, that would have been, that's true failure. So I think when I like redefined it as getting a no from someone is not failure. It just means that it's repivoting me in a way that it's going to help me learn exactly like you said, you learn something from it. There's always an opportunity and then you move forward. So um, I think that's really important for people to know that it is very much a personal development experience and journey. You, you really grow, you get pushed into the uncomfortable zone. Um, And I'm sure like, I love that the fact that you shared the duration of the time, like you started it in 2008. It's not like a lot of people, I think mentally, even with me, they're like, oh, I want to write a book and it's going to be out next year. And I was like, some people could do that. And that's great. That's fabulous. But sometimes it's a long game, right? For, oh, yeah. for a lot of us, it's like the long game. So um, I think that's really important. And talking about like purpose and passion, uh, one of the themes in your book for all three of your characters is that they're trying to find their identity, but also like pursue a dream or pursue something that they believe in. So I'm just curious, like, what is your definition of um, purpose? I think it's being connected to something greater than yourself. And then also when you're connected to that, no matter what the length of time is, you get put in this state of flow. Um, I think there's something so powerful about the state of mind that that people get into where when they're doing the thing they're meant to do or that really aligns with them, they lose track of time and they almost feel like they're meditating and, and things just align and feel very, very right. And for all three of those women, I wanted to find what those things are. And they obviously looked very different for each of them. But yeah, even in general, in my own life, and my friends' lives, I feel like I will know when they're talking about that thing that sparks them up from the inside. And it almost 
almost feels like they're meant to be with that particular mm-hmm. thing, whether it's a cause, whether it's a project, whether it's a person, whatever it is, I, I do think that there's something that just can't be explained in a way, but it's a feeling that happens. And I could be all about feelings because I'm also a mental health. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do think it comes to that, that, that yeah. just aligning with something that's bigger than you, but still feels like it's very much a part of you. Yeah. I love, I love that in the book, right? There's, so for Nandini, it was like her career versus, you know, Simran, it's like writing and something that, you know, a lot of times people kind of pigeonhole, like you think that your purpose is only your career, like what you do on your nine to five, that should be like what your purpose is. And for other people, they think it's like, oh, the, that hobby or that creative thing, that thing that takes me away from my day-to-day life. So it looks different. Like your purpose can look different, which is what I think that you so beautifully illustrated. And I love how you define what purpose is. It's like that feeling of just being in flow. Cause I, I totally agree with that. It actually kind of reminds me um, because especially like the ages too, mm-hmm. I think I love that you're not defined to finding your purpose. Like you're, if you're in your, tw- if you're in your thirties, you didn't miss the boat, you know, mm-hmm. or you're in your forties or your fifties or your sixties. It reminds me of that movie, um, the exotic, the best exotic miracle. The miracle the yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Right. Thank you. Like, you know, Thank you. Yeah. It, it just reminded, like when I was reading the book and like thinking about Nani, it just reminded me of like, you know, it's like this woman, like the, for people who haven't, you know, watched the movie, it's this woman who retires and she moves to India and she like works at this hotel, but she found like this purpose to her. I don't know how old she is, like, you know, 70 or 80. So that, that always just kind of reminded me that in life Mm -hmm. you might have new like versions and purposes that show up it's not like you're just like one purpose for your entire life like Mm -hmm. okay like it's my dream to be a writer and like that's the only thing it could change at a different phase I think what's a theme kind of between what you were saying before and then what you said right now which I love is this flexibility to to changing and being a new version of yourself depending on the version of life that you're in and that is so true that that we are not these stagnant creatures we do change and and that's a great great thing the way we can evolve yeah absolutely okay so i have to ask so you just mentioned that you're writing another book is it like an extension of this book or is it like completely different i just have to ask <laughs> it's, um, it's completely different. You know, it's so funny. I never thought about writing an extension of well-behaved Indian women. And then after it came out, I kid you not, at least twice a day, someone reaches out to me saying, oh, when is the sequel coming out? And I don't know if it's because they might be aware that I'm writing a second book, but no, I don't have plans right now to write a, a follow-up to it. And now maybe I have an idea because of the requests, which is so fun to hear. And, and I appreciate it so much. But my second book is about a completely separate family. Um, it is another South Asian family. And they do have a lot of drama, which seems to be my my thing to go to. You know? <laughs> which which South Asian family doesn't have drama? So that's a common theme. Yes, exactly. Um, and in this one, actually, so... There are two two sisters and a brother in the family, and uh, the older sister and the dad are both psychiatrists, and the younger sister wants to be a stand-up comedian, but she struggles with anxiety, and she is dating the best family friend's son, and so... 
Um, it's, it's about actually how her relationship with that son goes also while she's pursuing her career in again, a very unconventional path that she's trying to build for herself. She's a really big fan of Mindy Kaling. So a lot of her dreams and aspirations come from following Mindy's career. And the older sister is married to a Jewish guy and is a resident and, um, actually is trying to become a chief resident. And right when she's at an award ceremony, uh, where she receives an award for her skills as a resident, she sees that her ex-boyfriend, whom she never told her husband about, is there and is actually hired as a new doctor at the hospital. So it follows uh, so good. I can't wait. health. Um, and then and then the mom is probably the opposite of Nandini in every single way, but I hope that people find that fun. She is very community oriented. She organizes events every five minutes. She loves rap music. She loves country music. I mean, she just loves bringing together all parts of her personality into the community. And she actually wants to form a women's support group about the things that they refuse to talk about openly in order to actually come together. So, so the, again, we're following three women and, and their journeys to really becoming themselves and their truest and most, most authentic selves. Um, But hopefully people find some similarities with well-behaved Indian women and then some differences too. Oh, this sounds amazing. Have you found that because now you are, you know, you're a published author, like, has this writing process been different? Or, you know, is it been different now that you kind of have the experience of writing a book? You know, it's it's different um, because of that, but also in unexpected ways. The first book took so long. And I think that until I started writing the second one, I didn't realize the privilege in that. My impatient younger self was always thinking, this is taking so long, taking so long. But there's a lot of value to something being able to take its time. And and a lot of things can percolate and then come, come to fruition because of that. Whereas this, the turnaround was much, much quicker. You know, I didn't have 10 years. I had one. Mm. And in that time, I also had a baby. And then we've also all been through a pandemic. So I didn't anticipate how difficult it would be to write a second book in the midst of being pregnant and postpartum and the pandemic. I I just didn't. I thought that, oh, I've already done this before. It'll be so much easier. And actually, I think it was much more challenging in ways I didn't expect. That's really, and you're also practicing medicine right now too, right? So you're, so it's a completely different dynamic. Um, That's, that's so exciting. I'm so excited for you. You know, I need, it still needs a lot of work. So I, and so that's really what's taking up most of my time right now, but I am really hoping that it, if, if, if anything, I hope that it starts some level of dialogue about mental health in our community. Um, And and even speaking to what we were talking about before, I think our generation is doing such a great job of being more proactive and communicative about mental health in general. And that's made me so happy. And, And I hope this book does that. I hope this book encourages some talk about the stigmas that we hold and, and the battles that so many of us might be facing that might not be as apparent on the outside. Yeah. And you are a mental health advocate. Mm-hmm. That's something that, you know, I talk a lot about on this podcast, but you're also um, the co-founder of a mental health nonprofit, right? This is for her. I'd love for you to just share because we're talking about mental health. Sure. And about that. Um, sure. So my husband and I co-founded This Is For Her in 2016. Um, and the backstory to that is that 
we, I've always been interested in the girls empowerment space and always looked into different organizations doing different things for girls around the world. And when we were meeting people who also were working in that space during my residency, we met a man, Sean Mayberry, who has an organization called Strong Minds. And what they do is they're based out of Kampala, Uganda, and they do group therapy for women with depression who live around Kampala, Uganda. And they do about 16 to 20 sessions uh, of groups with these women and they track their uh, symptoms of depression throughout each session. So after we met him, he actually asked if we would ever be open to visiting. And my, we had always wanted to go to Kampala and so we decided, you know, let's make a trip out of this. So my first actually vacation block that I got, my second year of residency, that's what we did. We went to visit and see Sean's work on the ground. It was incredible. And by then, since I had also already been in touch with other leaders of different nonprofits in the area, we we just actually made an entire agenda where we visited each one. And we visited one that that worked with girls to, to see if they could provide more economic empowerment. So teaching them how to open small businesses, um, make clothes that they could sell, things like that. Another one that helped them develop menstrual hygiene products, because that's also such a big, big topic and need there. Um, and so we ended up meeting with multiple organizations that were working with girls and women in different ways. And it was so interesting. At the end of that trip, all of them actually came to me and they said, do you have a quick go-to guide for how we can incorporate some mental health education into our work? You know, here the stigma is so big and and people just really don't talk about it. And we just need a way to, to increase the dialogue around this. And so I told them, you know, let me go back to my training program and see if I can send you something I went back and I couldn't find anything. And I was baffled by that. I thought, how is there not a go-to guide that just explains, here's what depression is, here's what anxiety is, here's some symptoms, you know, here are the ways you can talk about it and, and have warning signs detected in a loved one. I, I just couldn't believe I, I couldn't find that. And so I decided to design it. And in the process of designing it, I was still in touch with the heads of these organizations. And I, and I basically just asked them straight up. I said, you know, if I come back next year and, and teach these concepts in a workshop, would you be open to that? And, and they all said, yes, please, please do that. So then the following year, uh, Samir and I went back and that's exactly what we did. And then we realized we have an organization here actually, and it's truly partnership based. So what we try to do is we give this curriculum that I've designed um, to these organizations. I teach it through a workshop format. And then really it's about empowering them to keep doing the work that they're already doing with the additional mental health component added to it. Oh, that's so remarkable. That That's such incredible. And it's so necessary, but I just love how you and your husband are working together to do this. That's so beautiful. Oh, thanks. He's, been, he's, he's so curious and just loves it. And it's so funny because people always think he's a mental health provider and he's not, but he's is he a doctor or is he? No, no, he's not. He works in business. And it's so funny whenever he's come to events with me, people are like, oh, you didn't tell me your husband's a psychiatrist because he just throws around the terms. So <laughs> he it up from you. He really does. Um, and I just, I love and appreciate that so, so much. But we did, um, we, we also designed exercises that could be done in a group that make it a little bit less intimidating to talk about. Because once those leaders told me about stigma, which again, as we know, the South Asian community is very much there too. It's everywhere. Yeah. Um, 
I realized we need easier ways to talk about it that don't seem as threatening. And so I designed a bunch of art therapy exercises where we could talk about what was going on. So our favorite one to this day is called Draw Your Mind, where we actually have every participant, we made journals for all of them to keep. Um, So everyone turns to a page in their journal and draws a circle, whatever shape they want, and then divides it up into quadrants to represent their mind and just then writes out what is taking up their mind most of the time and then size the quadrants accordingly. And then we have a group discussion about it. And it was incredible because in the first session that we had, we learned about everything from how, you know, one girl, she wanted to be Beyonce when she grows up, but then she's also suffered a lot of abuse as a child. And then she also wants to learn how to cook a specific dish. And I just thought that was so powerful how in one girl's mind, there are all these different things going on, but she doesn't really ever have the opportunity to talk about it. And that's really our goal is to help increase the dialogue, the awareness and the education around basic mental health concepts. That's so needed. That's so needed. I feel like on a widespread, you know, that's needed. I think I love that exercise, by the way, because that Mm -hmm. makes, I love visual things, but that's really, really good. And speaking of like young girls, you know, somebody at the book club had mentioned this, which I think is so remarkable that many of us felt like, oh, if I had read a book like Mm -hmm. Well-Behaved Women at a younger age, Mm -hmm. that would have maybe made me understand my dynamics with my parents a little bit more, or just like the the cultural differences of being raised and brought up here and like being South Asian. So I think it's actually like for any of the moms listening who have teenage daughters or early 20s, it's actually a book. It's not just for moms. I think it's for younger generations as well as too. Oh, thank you. I think, I, I, I think you're so right though, because I, and I appreciate um, Bunsri asking that question. Yeah. I, when I was in high school and college, I did want books I could relate to as well. You know, speaking to this point, I don't know if this ever happened for you, but when I was reading Sweet Valley Twins and Baby mm-hmm. Club growing up, I did find a way to relate to those, even if I didn't have blonde hair. I really wanted blonde hair. We should talk about some time about how representations affected all of us. Yes. <laughs> but I, I I did find a way. And so I, I think that when I experienced some barriers to publishing about how the story wasn't relatable and how there wouldn't be a market for it, it did speak to how we can all find a way to relate to all types of stories because you had mentioned something about universal themes and emotions that we all go through. Um, and that's so true. And it's it's important to just be able to read and take in things that represent you on some level. Yeah, I agree. That's actually a really valid point because that it is a universal theme, like, you know, seeking validation, approval from outside of you. That's just, I feel like, human nature. So, which you illustrate and address so well in here. Um, but this has been such a remarkable time getting to know you. And when your second book comes out, we're going to have to do it again. And we'll oh, talk I would love that. I would love that so much. This has been so fun. And I just love what you're doing, really. I think speaking to what we need and what I would have needed years ago, this is just really filling that. And I appreciate you doing it so much. Thank you so much. That really means so much to me. So for anyone, like I mentioned at the beginning, Go and get this book. I promise. I devoured it so quickly. Devoured it in two days. You are going to love it. And I thank you so much for being here. This was great. Thank you. This was so fun. And what a great way to to have my week go, really. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. All right, everyone. Until next week. Bye, guys. 
If you've been loving the Time and Talks podcast and you find value from it, I would be so eternally grateful if you take a moment of your time to leave a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. And when you do, I love to gift you my seven-day stress detox course. All you got to do is screenshot your review before you submit it. Email it to me at thejal at thejalvpatel.com. And when you do, I'll inbox you the details of the course. This course has my go-to tools anytime I feel impatient, angry, frustrated, and I come to them almost every single day. And I promise these are the tools that you're going to want to have in your back pocket too. And if you haven't purchased the Meditation for Kids book, definitely do so now. You can purchase it anywhere you buy books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, IndieBound, BAM. And you can go to meditationforkidsbook.com to get more information on the Meditation for Kids Masterclass course. If you're a complete beginner in learning how to teach meditation to your kids, this is the step-by-step roadmap that's going to to teach you how to teach your kids meditation without having to become a certified meditation expert. Thank you so much, guys. Bye.